0: Okay, quick scheduling note, this week we have the festival of Shavuos, and this year it falls out on Friday, so Thursday night, Friday. And in the diaspora, where we are located, we celebrate two days of Shavuos. That means that Friday and Shabbos is Shavuos, which means that this week we will not be reading Parshas Noso. In Shul on Shabbos, because it's going to be the festival. And when you have a festival, you don't read the regular weekly Parsha portion. In Israel, where they only keep one day of the festival, this week, this Shabbos, they're going to have Friday is going to be Shavuos. And Shabbos is going to be a regular, regular week because they only have one day of the festival. And therefore this week in Israel, it is Parshas not So, but because we are stationed in the diaspora, we are going to have parashas not so next week. And it's going to take a couple of weeks until we resynchronize our schedules. We're going to have a, a, a double week, a double Parsha, and our brethren in the land of Israel are going to have only one. And we're going to once again get back on track. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be off schedule with the communities in the land of Israel. And this week, there is no so I figured I'll give you a podcast for the Parsha podcast audience that I just recorded for one of my other channels, the This Jewish Life podcast channel. I just recorded it today, today's Wednesday. And this is on, it's on the Book of Ruth, but it's also on the Festival of Shavuos in general. I think it came out uh, marvelous. I think it was great. So I figured if we're not going to have a Parsha this week, we're not going to have a new Parsha podcast this week. Please, God, we will have one for Parsha Nasso next week. But in the meantime, you can enjoy, hopefully you will enjoy, this podcast that, again, is from the other channel, but I'm cross-posting it here on the Parsha podcast. Hope you enjoy. Send me an email, RabbiWalby at gmail.com. The Festival of Shavuos is upon us. This is the day where we commemorate, we relive, The wonderful, dramatic events that happened 3,300 plus years ago, where the nation surrounded the mountain and experienced and witnessed with their own eyes and heard with their own ears prophecy. The nation heard the Ten Commandments. The nation heard God communicating with Moshe, and thus began the Jewish nation and the Jewish experiment in earnest. Ever since, we have revisited this incredible day and this momentous moment where an entire nation experiences prophecy, happened only once in history, there's only one claim of divine revelation in history, and this continues to animate our nation 3,300 years later. Today, I want to focus on one of the central themes, perhaps, maybe the central theme of this day, but also the the portal through which we can really maximize the impact of these days. And how do do we actually become a player? You know, if we want to actually do it, if we want to really make some progress over the course of our Shavuos, what do we need to do? And I want to begin by talking briefly about the book of Ruth which is, of course, one of the 24 books of the Tanakh, of the Bible. And this is read on Shavuos. And a brief summary of the story talks about a a wealthy family, and they flee Bethlehem because there's a famine, and they relocate to Moab. This is a father, a mother, and two sons. And the two sons marry two Moabite princesses, Orpah and Ruth, and then all the men die. Elimelech, Machlon, and Chilion. And then the mother, she now is bereft of her of her husband and of her sons. She decides to return to the land, and her daughters-in-law join her. They say, "We're coming with you. We're committed to the cause." And she tries to dissuade them. Ultimately, Arpa relents, and she returns to becoming a Moabite, but Ruth clings to her mother-in-law, and they return to the land, and she's unrecognizable, and they return at the time of the harvest, and Ruth is gathering some leftover shearing in the field of uh, a wealthy, distant relative of her husband, of her deceased, now deceased husband, Boaz, and he notices her, and he asks about her, and he encourages her, and he praises her, and she effectively proposes to marry him in a uh, version of Leverite marriage, And initially, he seats a closer relative, and that relative who is unnamed demurs. And ultimately, Boaz marries Ruth, and they bear a son. And this son is the grandfather of King David. And this is part of the Messianic line that is the family of royalty and monarchy amongst our nation. Now, we read this on Shavuos. And it's not immediately evident as to what this has to do with the main themes of the festival. There are, of course, many classic answers that are given, some more tenuous than others. But today I want to suggest perhaps a new idea. It's maybe an amalgamation of some of the other classic ideas, but I think it will provide a new angle into both the story of Ruth – And the, the essence, the heart, if you will, of the festival of Shavuos, but also a path for us for what we can tangibly do to tap into the great powers of this day. We're going to begin with a battery of questions and we're going to suggest one answer that answers all the questions. And it's going to be a bit lofty. It's going to sound a little bit esoteric and abstract. But I think we'll be able to bring it down to our level and discover a tremendous insight, maybe even a surprising insight, that can forever change our Shavuos and our relationship with the Torah and with the Almighty. It could change our lives. And that, of course, is something that, which is uh, worth to pursue. So let's start off with some questions. The Talmud, in the book of Shabbos, on page 88b, it records the narrative of what happened after Moshe ascended to heaven. We know that after the Ten Commandments, after the Revelation, this is featured in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus, Hashem tells Moshe, God tells Moshe, ascend to the mountain, come to this other dimension, this other phase of existence, transposed to heaven. And now we'll give you the tablets and the law, all the details of the corpus of law of the Torah. Of course, the beginning of it all is the Ten Commandments. We get ten laws, but these are not just ordinary laws. Of course, no law in the Torah is ordinary, but these are our concentrated digest of all of Torah. And now God tells Moshe, Ascend, come to me for 40 days and 40 nights, and I'll give you the details. We'll flesh it all out so you'll have what you need to convey to the nation. And we know the story. Moshe goes up and spends 40 days and 40 nights in heaven. Doesn't eat, doesn't drink, doesn't sleep. Leaves the nation under the care of Aaron and Hur, and that works out great. For the first 39 days, there's a miscalculation. And then you have the sin of the golden calf, and Moshe gets the tablets and discovers the nation celebrating with the golden calf and shatters the tablets, etc. We know the story. But the Talmuds talk about what happened when Moshe initially ascended to heaven. Bishasha Allah Moshe La when Moshe ascended to Marum, to heaven. And the angels noticed that something was amiss. There's a human an earthling, walking amongst them. And that was very surprising. That's not what they expected. You don't see this every day in heaven. And they inquired before God, master of the world, why is there someone who was born to a woman, i.e., why is there a human amongst us? And that, of course, raised their eyebrows. Just the idea that there's a human amongst them. But God's response to their question flummoxed them even further. Amar Lahan God said to them, "Lekabel Torahba." He's coming to get the Torah, and this threw them into a tizzy. What? This treasure, this hidden treasure that you have with you, and preceded the world by 974 generations. You want to give it to humanity? You want to give it to flesh and blood? Humanity? Mortal, fallible man? Flawed human? You want to give the holy Torah to these earthlings? That's part of the narrative that we find in in the Talmud. Talmud. The angels can't believe that Moshe's is there, a human's there, someone was born to a woman is there, and they certainly cannot accept the fact that God's going to give them his Torah. The Torah is the first creation of God. From our perspective, our say tell us that the Torah is indistinguishable from God. If you want to connect to God, you can't do it directly because we can't even fathom the infinite nature of God. But the Almighty infused His holiness, so to speak, into the Torah. And the Torah was transmitted and transposed to us in in ways, in language, using terminology that is finite, that is understandable to us. And when we study the Almighty's holy Torah, we are connecting to Him on the deepest level, deepest level possible. You want to love God? You want to fear God? How do you do that? How do you interface with the Almighty? That's done via his Torah. And the angels, for them, the Torah was such such a mystical, special, hidden treasure. And God doesn't want to give them the Torah. He wants to give it to humanity, to mortal man, to frail man, to flesh and blood, to those who are born of women. A man with a yitzhara, evil inclination, such a conflicted being, they're going to be the receptacles of Torah? The angels are are totally blindsided by God's plan. How can you possibly give the Torah to the Jewish people or to humanity at all? It's so incongruent. It's not a fit. So here's the first question I want to ponder. The angels don't explain their reasoning. They just say, well, the Torah, it's not a fit for humanity. But why? Why indeed is, in the view of the angels, why is Torah so incompatible with humanity? The angels are clearly not just taking empty snipes, potshots at humanity. They are claiming That the Torah, the Holy Torah, it's just not compatible with humanity, with flesh and blood, with those born to a woman. And the question is, why not? What is the argument of the angels? Question number two is that Moshe doesn't really provide an answer to this question. If you continue the narrative in the Talmud, Moshe points out how the Torah is not fitting for the angels. And therefore, it shouldn't stay in heaven. Uh, You say it shouldn't come to us. Well, it shouldn't be here. And that's not really the point that the angels had surfaced. The angels had said, well, how could Torah be given to humanity? And that Moshe does not answer. So question number two is, what's the answer to the question? We we, want to understand first, you know, what's the problem that the angels have? Why do the angels bristle at the suggestion that Torah be given to humanity? Why is it so problematic for us to have Torah? And B, why indeed are we worthy of bearing the Torah? Now, this is the festival that we celebrate the receiving of the Torah, this Transposition of the Torah that it always was, even before the world's created, it's 974 generations, whatever that means. Before the world's created, the Torah was in heaven, it was in this other sphere. And at this moment, on this day, it began to be given. It began to be conferred upon humanity. There's a change that's happening here. And the angels protested. And we don't know why they protested. And we don't know why, ultimately, their protests were overridden. Question number one and number two. Question number three, well, that orients around the nations. There is an iconic Midrash that talks about how God did not give the Jewish people preferential treatment. Even though we're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're destined to have the land— and we have all these covenants that God forged with our antecedents. When it came time to give the Torah, the Almighty first went to all the other nations. They had the rights of first refusal. When God revealed himself and revealed the Torah to the Jewish people, says the Midrash, it wasn't just for us. He went to all the nations. And in fact, he went to the other nations before he came to us, he went over to the descendants of Asav. Do you want the Torah? Will you accept my Torah? And they responded with a question, well, tell us more. What's in the Torah? What are the details? And the nation of Asav, they were told, well, it says, tzach, thou shalt not murder. And they said, well, no. We cannot accept the Torah. The whole essence of our founder, of our patriarch, Asaph, is that he was a murderer. The hands, physical violence, well, the hands are the hands of Asaph. When Asaph managed to wrest a blessing out of Isaac after Jacob had usurped the blessings, he told him, you shall live upon your sword. Our nation's identity, our nation's essence is that of bloodshed. We cannot accept the Torah. The Torah talks about this uh, docility, passivity. That's not for us. Not to murder. And for that reason, we're out. And then God went to the nation of Ammon and Moab. You recall them. They are the descendants of Lot that he bore with his daughters in a very scandalous episode in Genesis. And God said to these nations, you want the Torah? Well, what's in it? Thou shalt not commit adultery or any other form of illicit promiscuity. And they said, no, we can't do that. We cannot Sign the line that is dotted. Our founding of the nation was one of incest. This is who we are. Fidelity, it's not for us. Monogamy, not for us. Avoiding promiscuity? Oh no, not our nation. We're out. And he went to the Ishmaelites. Do you want the Torah? What's in it? Don't steal. Don't steal. Don't you know what it says about Ishmael? Before he's even born, he will be a wild man. His hand is in everyone else's pocket. We cannot accept the Torah. In every nation, God offered them the Torah. And in the words of the Midrash, he knocked on their doors. Will you accept the Torah? And they all rejected. They all passed. This is the pattern. Every nation was offered the Torah. And they all asked, well, give us the details. What does it include? And God responded with precisely the mitzvah. That was their weakness. That was their Achilles heel. For was it was murder. They passed. For Ishmael was theft. That's a red line. And so on for every nation. But here's the question. God, when they asked for the terms of the deal, for the small print, the fine print, they want to read the terms and conditions, God responded with the one thing that was a deal breaker, that was a red line and untouchable. I could do everything else, but not this. It doesn't seem fair. The system is rigged. It's designed to have them fail. Why did God have to choose that mitzvah as the sample representative mitzvah? For Esav, not to murder. For Ishmael, not to steal. Imagine if the sample representative mitzvah was something that they excelled at. We know that Esav, there was one mitzvah that Esav did even better than his twin brother, Jacob. And that's honoring his parents. That's also the Ten Commandments. And if God said, well, what's the Torah, honor your parents, he would have said, okay, I'm in. It wouldn't have turned him off. Similarly, we know that Ishmael excelled, even today, the Ishmaelites excel at kindness and hospitality, even prayer as well. Imagine if instead of saying the representative mitzvah is not to steal, the representative mitzvah was to do kindness. We know that's a pillar, one of the three pillars that uphold the world. You would imagine that Ishmael maybe would have said yes. So God's putting his thumb, so to speak, on the scale. It's not fair. Why is he deliberately featuring something that he knows they will balk at? That's question number three. So we have three questions about the giving of the Torah and the acceptance of the Torah. And here's question number four. The very first time that the Sinai experience, the Sinai revelation is featured in Scripture. It actually happens in Exodus chapter 20. But the first time it is referenced is earlier in the book of Exodus. And that's in chapter 3, verse 12. This actually happens on Mount Sinai. Moshe is working as a shepherd for his father-in-law. And he sees the burning bush and it's not being consumed by the fire and he takes up his feet and he has a whole conversation with the angel. And God, via this prophecy, is telling Moshe, go to Egypt. It's time to save the nation. And we know the story. Moshe is very reluctant to accept this responsibility. And he launches this salvo of objections. I'm not worthy. They won't listen to me. What will I say? Pharaoh won't believe me. What name of God should I say? Spoke to me. Send Aaron instead. But the very first two objections are featured in verse 11. Moshe tells God, Who am I to go before Pharaoh? And why are the nation, why are the people, deserving of being saved. And in the following verse, verse 12, the Almighty responds to both of Moshe's objections. Regarding the first objection that you're not worthy, well, I'll be with you. And regarding the second objection that the nation is not worthy, when they leave, They will worship God on this mountain. The justification, the credit, the the worthiness of the nation to merit the Exodus, we're told, is because they will ultimately have the sign of Revelation. It's explicit in Scripture. Chapter 3 verse 12, the reason why the nation will be meritorious, will be deserving of the Exodus is because after the Exodus, they will come to this mountain, this very same mountain where the burning bush conversation and dialogue is happening, and they will worship God on this mountain. I want to focus on one part of this verse, and that's specifically the description of of what's going to happen on this mountain. You will worship God. You will offer service to God. The word ta'avdun is from the word Evan which means a slave or a servant. You will provide service to God. What is this service of God on the mountain that God is referencing here? It's not immediately clear what is being referred to. Now, if you were to just ask me this question, hey, in chapter 3, verse 12 of Exodus, it says that the Jewish people did service of God. They worked for God. They were subservient to God on Mount Sinai. What does that mean? I would have said, well, they they were at Mount Sinai for wasn't just the sign of revelation. Wasn't just the Ten Commandments. They were there for almost a whole year, ten days shy of a year. They encamped at Mount Sinai on the first day of Sivan, and they were there until the following year, the twentieth day of Er, which is the month before Sivan. So exactly ten days shy of a year. So uh, you know, they, they they during their tenure, they built the tabernacle and they offered lots of sacrifices. And that's service of God. And maybe that's what the verse is referring to when it says they will serve God on this mountain. But if you look at Rashi, Rashi says otherwise. What is the service of God on this mountain that is being referred to here? It's the acceptance of the Torah. The Sinai revelation, this change in how the world is operating, where God says, okay, my Torah, my treasure, that's even hidden from the angels, that's been with me, the first creation of God, 974 generations before the world was created, whatever that means. I'm going to give it to this people, not to the Ishmaelites, Esau, Amunimov, other nations, this people. That transformation, that shift in the world I always thought of it as a revelation. Okay, we we experienced it. We got something. We got a gift. Here we have a verse in Scripture that tells us that it's a form of avoda. It's, it's service of God. It's servitude to God. This is a brand new definition of the revelation. And this is question number four here. What is this servitude, this avoda, this work, this submission, this subjugation to God that's featured at the time of the acceptance of the Torah? Where at Sinai is this servitude? And finally, the fifth question that I want to ponder with y'all today is manna. We know the Jewish people receive manna sometime between the Exodus which, of course, we celebrate on Pesach, and the Sinai Revelation, which we celebrate on Shavuos. Sometime in between the matzah that they brought with them, the the dough that they baked when they left from Egypt, that matzah was depleted. And, of course, you're in the desert. There are not a lot of marketplaces and food establishments to provide food for this nation of millions. But for 40 years, the Almighty rained manna upon the nation. And sometime between Pesach and Shavuos, the the matzah was depleted, and in its stead, they had manna from heaven. Of course, manna is very convenient. Every morning, you don't need to do shopping. You don't need to do really anything. It's rains down every morning, and twice on Friday. Not twice, but the equivalent of two days' food falls on Friday. It's very convenient. It's very helpful. And of course, the nation needs it. But the Midrash tells us something very, very interesting and intriguing the Jewish people had to have received the manna before the Sinai revelation because the Torah can only be given to those who are consuming manna. The only way we can get the Torah, the only way our ancestors could have received the Torah, is only if they were manna eaters. And the question is why? Why is manna, manna eating, a prerequisite for Torah? Why is the diet, the manna diet, why is this the only way that a person can receive the Torah? So These are five questions about the sign of Revelation and the days around it and the deliberations in heaven about it. Question number one, why did the angels think that we were unworthy, that humanity is unworthy of Torah? Why, in fact, were we? Are we worthy of that? Why the nation proved unworthy, specifically because they refused to accept the mitzvot that were very difficult for them? Why were they positioned to fail? Why is the Sinai revelation described as avoda, as service of God? And why is eating manna the only way to get the Torah? And what does this all have to do with the book of Ruth that we read on Shavuos. So I want to suggest an approach. And we'll start off with kind of the architecture of the idea. It's going to sound a little lofty. It's going to sound a little abstract. And please God, we will then bring it down to our terms and discover precisely what we need to do in order to prepare for this day and to really have some meaningful and transformative experience on Shavuos and in our preparation for it. So let's start like this. God, before he offered us the Torah, he offered it to every other nation. And they all refused, each for their own reason. What happened when God offered the Torah to the Jewish people? So unlike all the other nations, we did not say, well, what's in it? What are the details? Give me some sample laws so I can assess whether or not I want to receive the Torah. Instead, the nation said, as one with one voice, with one heart, we are in. We are committed. And there's a very famous verse about this. Whatever Hashem says, we will do and we will listen the nation doesn't flinch, they don't hesitate, they don't say I got to speak to my wife, to my accountant, to my lawyer. they're in total commitment, and of course this this motto is a very famous motto of our nation, na vanishma we said we will do, and we will listen even before we know what's in it, even before we see the details, we're going in blind. And we're in, and we're committed, and we'll figure out what we need to do once we're there. And that's why we check the Torah, and the rest is history, of course. But listen to this. When the Talmud talks about our declaration, we will do and we will listen, the Talmud says that that statement evoked a prophecy. This is in eighty-eight A of the Book of Shabbos. When the Jewish people said Nishma, they said Na'aseh before Nishma, we will do before we will listen. A prophetic voice emitted the following statement. Me Gila who revealed to my sons, to my children, this secret? That the ministering angels use. The Jewish people, apparently on their own volition, with their own inspiration, they said, we will do and we will listen. They said, we will do before. They said, we will listen. And the prophecy declares, who told them the secret? How did they know this? How did they know this formulation that the angels use. There's something angelic about what the Jews said, about how they responded to the offer of Torah. The other nations, they're given the option, do you want Torah? And they responded like humans. How do humans respond? Let's do my due diligence. I got to find out what's in it. Let me read the fine print, let me at least have some sense of what is included in the Torah. The other nations responded like humans. We responded like an angel, like angels. We said what we're in. We will do and we will listen. And that's the point of differentiation between us and the other nations. And this is why we got the Torah and they did not. We acted like angels and they acted like reasonable, sensible, responsible, prudent humans. I think this is what the acceptance of Torah was. This is what it takes to accept Torah. You need to be an angel. As we mentioned, the holiness of the Torah is undiminished. No matter how it's couched, it can be couched in the most finite terms. We spent a lot of time in the yeshiva studying Talmud relating to cows and bulls goring each other. Nevertheless, the Almighty embedded His holiness, so to speak, inside the Torah. God and His Torah, our sages tell us, are one God's indivisible from Torah. How can any human, any flesh and blood, any one born to a woman, any fallible, mortal human, how can we have any interface with Torah? Torah comes from this higher realm, from this other dimension, from these upper worlds. The angels, they see Moshe amongst them. That, of course, raises their curiosity. What's he doing here? And then when God says he's he's here to get the Torah, they say, well, no, he's a human. And he's going to give the Torah to earthlings, to flesh and blood, to those born of a woman. These are humans. These are mortal humans. They are completely incapable of harboring the Almighty's holy Torah. That was their question. And what's the answer? We discover our claim to the Torah, when it was offered to us, we said, Na'asev nishma. we didn't relate to it as humans. We related to it as angels. And parenthetically, when the Jewish people said, Na'asev nishma, they were given crowns, one for an one for an Every Jew was given two crowns and those were delivered by angels. That statement catapulted us to this high level, to this otherworldly level where we are being served by the angels. We're like peers of the angels and we're living on this very different dimension. The Torah can only be received by those who eat manna. Manna is described in our literature as lechem abirim, the food of the angels. We think of Manna has been very convenient. You're in the desert. You need food. Well, isn't it nice to have manna? But that's not what manna is. Mana is a spiritual food that angels eat. Angels don't need uh, physical nutrition. Even when they came to visit Abraham, they just pretended to eat. There's something spiritual about the manna that can be Legitimately described as, this is the bread of angels. Only those who ate manna, only those who were like angels and ate like angels and interfaced with the world like angels, only those kinds of people are worthy of receiving the Torah. The angels, when they see Moshe, and they hear about this crazy notion that God is going to give the Torah to the Jewish people, they respond, it's, it's not possible. And they are correct. Mortal humans, flesh and blood, were just not candidates. Humans are not candidates for Torah. Other nations, they're just not candidates. But at Sinai, the nation ascended to a different dimension. Of course, they had the preparation with the man, etc. But they became, on some degree, on some level, they became angels. And that is how they were able to receive the Torah. Now, I said this is the architecture of the idea, and it's a bit lofty, a bit abstract. Let's bring it down to our frames of reference. What does it mean to be an angel? What is the definition of an angel? The definition of an angel is a messenger of God. Every angel can only do one mission, we're told. Because if you have two missions, necessarily you have two angels. Because one angel can only exist to do one mission. And therefore, if there's something else, it's got to be a different angel. The definition of an angel is an entity that has completely eliminated, removed, excised any independent existence outside of the service of the Master. It's an entity that exists for the sole purpose of executing the will of God. The Jewish people, they said, This is a secret. This is how the angels talk. Why? Because this is what an angel does. Total commitment to what the master commands. The other nations were given the option, do you want the Torah? And they said, well, am I going to like it? Is it going to jive with my life? How is it going to fit in? Am I going to be able to do it? Those are the reactions of someone who has an independent identity. There are things that I am and things... That this is who I am, and this is what I do, and this is what I prioritize, this is what I value. These are my behaviors. Is Torah compatible with that? That's how how they responded to it, like humans. And no, they're not candidates for Torah. The Jewish people said, we're like angels. We'll do. But what if it doesn't? fit with my way of life, my outlook, my Weltanschauung, it doesn't fit with my tradition, it doesn't fit with my behavior, with my limitations, with my current behavior. What do I do? I just don't like it. That wasn't part of their calculus. They were angels. Like angels, they completely subjugated their independent existence and they became solely messengers of God. Now, there is a human parallel to this. There's another type of entity that ceases to have their independent existence, and we call it a slave, an Eved. An Eved does not have independent existence. They exist solely to serve the master. In fact, one of the laws of a slave is that whatever they acquire, the master acquires. The definition of a slave, of a servant, is the same thing as an angel. It's a submission to the master to the degree that the person who is submitted ceases to have. An independent existence. The definition of what the Jewish people became at Sinai—they became like angels. They became like servants of God because they exhibited total subservience to God. Total subservience to God. They completely ceased to have any own, any of their own independent agenda, like an angel like a servant, like a slave. They had a singular mindset, a singular focus to do the master's agenda. When Moshe is talking to God and God says, well, the merit of the Jewish people is that when they get to this mountain, they will serve me, ta'avdun, they will serve me. What does that mean? Rashi tells us they'll accept the Torah. The acceptance of the Torah is an act of servitude, of submission and subjugation to the master we could call that a servant a slave or an angel the point is the same it's an act where a person says my own independent existence it's just not doesn't exist that has ceased to exist and only via that acting like a servant like a slave like an angel only that renders a person worthy of receiving the torah interesting that when, just parenthetically, you have a Jewish bondsman, a Jewish slave as it's called, they have to work for six years and in the seventh year they get sent free. What if they voluntarily choose to lengthen their servitude? So the Torah tells us, chapter 21 of Exodus, they got to go to the doorpost and got to pierce their ear. Why is their ear pierced? Rashi tells us. Because the ear failed to hear the message of Sinai. At Sinai, the message was, you are a servant of God. And now, this person wants to accept upon themselves the servitude of another. They didn't listen carefully. And therefore, that ear, that flawed listening device, must be punctured. Because they missed the core message of Sinai. Asav Ishmael Amun and Moav. I would imagine that the notion of accepting the Imam's Torah is exciting to anyone. Think about how tantalizing it is. The Almighty Creator of heaven and earth is going to give you the manual, this treasure that He has been harboring 974 generations before the world's created. He's going to give it to you. That's very exciting. What an opportunity. Why couldn't they do it? Because they still had a hangup, so to speak. They still had their own pre-existing identity that they were not willing to drop as an angel would, as a slave would. If God said to them, well, Asaph, what it takes is to honor your parents. Asaph would say, I'm in. But he would still not be an angel. He would still not be a servant. He would still not be a slave. He's still not a candidate to receive the Torah because he's not submitting his will to God's will. Specifically, when you say, There's something that's, that's very hard for me to do, it's very hard for me to forfeit, it's very hard for me to give up. Only that demonstrates that you are a candidate for Torah. Specifically, when someone engages in self-abnegation, when someone negates their own identity, only then can someone become a messenger of God, solely focused on executing the will of the Master. Solely focused. Not on their own independent existence, but completely subservient to the Master. If you think about it, this is the story of Ruth. Ruth, she grew up in Moab. She was Moabite princess, we're told. And her story, her transformation, is one of complete negation of self. Her identity, I'm a Moabite. No, I'm not. I live here. No, I don't. She completely dropped her previous identity and adopted a new one. She chose to leave Moab, to leave the palace, to leave the land, to leave even without a husband, to leave the pagan deities of Moab, to leave it all behind. Where's her own personal identity? Where's Ruth the Moabite? Ruth the Moabite doesn't exist. And Nami is trying to shake her off, trying to push her away trying to send her back home. And Arpa, well, she yields and she goes home. But Ruth persists. She clung to Naomi and she completely negated her previous self. She completely forfeited her previous identity. And she became single-minded like an angel. The verse tells us, Ruth tells her mother-in-law, Don't badger me anymore. I'm not going to leave. Wherever you go, I go. Wherever you sleep, I sleep. Your nation is my nation. Your God is my God. Where you die, I die. And there I will be buried. And no matter what God does to me, do like this and do even more. Only death will separate you and me. And there's a very nice Rashi, a very beautiful Midrash, which shows how she's completely giving up on everything in a way very similar to the Jewish people at Sinai. not nah, We will do, we will listen. How could you accept that? You can only accept that if you're like an angel. Ruth is re-enacting Sinai. And it's interesting, you know, Moshe goes up to heaven and the angel said, well, we can't give the Torah to the Jewish people. And Naomi is doing the same thing to her daughter-in-law. Like the angels who said, well, what is flesh and blood? people with oral source of their own agenda, what possible ability do they have to receive the Almighty's Torah? And Ruth like the Jewish people. She says, She's completely in. She's completely dropping her previous identity. And like an angel, like a trustworthy messenger, focused solely on the mission, forfeiting everything, to join this nation, and to join this mission. I find it interesting, maybe poignant and, and, and cute even, the Midrash stresses that even though Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, she lived long enough to see not only David be crowned, but even Solomon, his son, so her great great grandson be crowned as well. And why the Midrash has to stress that, I want to theorize. When the Jewish people said, Na'asev and nishma, they received two crowns apiece. She said, Na'asev and nishma. she embodied this total commitment to God, to the exclusion of her own independent agenda. And therefore, she too was rewarded with two crowns, the crown of David and the crown of Solomon. Ruth is the paradigmatic example of a convert. A convert is someone that gets a new soul. It's a new person. It's a new identity. Sinai itself was also conversion. In fact, we learned the laws of conversion from Sinai and what the Jewish people had to do before Sinai to go to the mitzvah to get the circumcision, and to accept the Torah. And we learn it from also Ruth. What this means is that conversion, modern-day conversion, is a reenactment of Sinai and a reenactment of, of Ruth's commitment to join this nation. What is the nature of this acceptance? It's na'asev and v'nishmah. We will do and we will listen to become an angel. So it's very clear to us what happened at Sinai and what the Jewish people needed to do to be worthy of it, and why the others were not worthy of it, and why we read the Book of Ruth on this day. But let's take this one notch closer home. What does this have to do with us? Very nice ideas about Sinai and receiving the Torah and the angels and not Seven Ishma and Ruth. We're 3,300 plus years later. What does this have to do with us? And the answer is everything. We don't believe that we celebrate, we commemorate, we mark, we remember days in the calendar. We believe that the same revelation that happened on Mount Sinai 3,300 plus years ago is reenacted every single year at that juncture in the calendar. And thus we don't commemorate or mark or remember days. We relive them. We reaccept the Torah. And therefore we have to do what they did to be worthy of it. They had to convert. Ruth is the story of the righteous convert. It's not just a one-time phenomenon. The sign of Revelation happens every single year. And every single year we get the opportunity to re-accept the Torah. And now we know what the nation had to do to accept the Torah at Sinai. If we want to have a connection with the power, with the awesome power of this day, we have to also undergo a conversion. Of course, if you're already Jewish, you don't need to do it again. But the principle of na'asev of the commitment that the nation exhibited at Sinai, that is the order of the day. If this is the time of acceptance of the Torah, and the Jewish people did work. They did service of God. They did subjugation to God on this day. That's what we need to do as well. The definition of accepting of the Torah is self-abnegation. They needed to eat the manna. They needed to become angels. We need to do that as well. The Rambam tells us that the requirement of receiving Torah, of studying Torah, of being a recipient of the gift of the crown of Torah. It requires the forfeiture of something. In his Laws of Torah Study, he writes, this is chapter 3, law number 12, the words of Torah do not endure unless someone weakens themselves over it. If someone wants to have a good time and focus on their body, and their food, and their drink, and physical pleasure. They are not a candidate, says Rambam, to really be a receptacle of Torah. It's interesting, you know, all the other pursuits of knowledge, being someone who's enjoying life and enjoying physical and material delicacies, that's not a contradiction. When it comes to Torah, the angels made it clear, if you're a human, if you're a flesh and blood, to the degree that you are not a servant of God, you are not like an angel, you are not a candidate to receive the Torah. Continues the Rambam, the only way a person can acquire the Torah is if they die over it. Very harsh terminology. bemi b'mi shememis atsmo alehen. You have to die over it. This is Obviously, very intense words in the Rambam. The pursuit of Torah, it's unlike other pursuits. It's given in the way it was given at Sinai. And that means you have to become an angel. You have to become a servant of God. You have to say, Na'asev and You have to follow the ways of Ruth. And that demands a certain elimination of the independent agenda that we all have. We all have an agenda we want to have. The physical this and the material that and physical pleasures, all that excites us. But if we are living such a life, the angels and their claim against the Jewish people receiving the Torah, it reemerges. Humanity, mortal, fallible flesh and blood, they're not candidates to receive the Torah. And you know what? That is still true. The only way we can become actual receptacles of Torah, we can reaccept the Torah on Shavuos, is if we vacate some space within ourselves to accept God and to be a servant of God. And that's why, and this might be a little bit above us you know got to know where you're holding don't don't try to jump to heaven as they say but that's why the great sages would always make a studious effort to not have other things on their agenda at all for example the of Vilna, he would strive to not gain any physical pleasure out of consumption of food. He would only he would dump some bread in water and just drink the water, and that that way you could still say the brachov, mazonos, etc. We're told in the words of our sages: you have to pray that the food and other delicacies don't enter your innards. Why? What's so bad about it? Where's the sin? There is no sin. The acceptance of Torah. It's the act of transformation of self into an angel. It's the elimination of any independent agenda. It's the becoming of a servant of God. And again, this is lofty levels. It's not for simpletons like us. But I had a theory. Of course, it's the tradition the world over to stay up the whole night on Shavuos. Study Torah the whole night. And there are reasons given in the Kabbalistic literature why we do that. Jewish people, they slept, they had to be aroused to receive the Torah, to hear the Ten Commandments. And therefore, we want to fix that flaw, etc. But maybe there's another reason. How do you prepare for the power and the awesomeness of the conveyance of Torah anew? You want to make sure you're not like Ishmael and and, Asav and Amun and Moab and all the other nations who were not candidates. And the way you do that is by yielding, by forfeiting, by becoming a servant of God, yielding your independent identity and agenda. So maybe this is just an idea that we can postulate, we can posit. Maybe the reason why we stay up at night is to take one thing that we all hold dear and we all cherish. And that's a good night's sleep. And we eliminate it. To a certain degree, it's it's a certain killing of oneself. It's a statement that no, I have no independent, or at least I have less of an independent agenda. We want to become a servant of God. That's how you do it. That's how you receive the Torah. And maybe by forfeiting one of those things that we really value, Maybe that's the way or one of the ways that we can get in the right mood to become someone that is, in fact, worthy. We want to be like Ishmael and Asaph. The angels made it very clear. They are not, they, these humans who come up with with all their hang-ups, they're not candidates. We want to be a candidate. Now we know how to do it. So we understand the role that Ruth plays and how it matches what happened at Sinai, and what we need to do to receive the Torah ourselves. And therefore, I would suggest that if someone wants to take this seriously, there's something that we can do to have a more productive Shavuos and a more productive acceptance of the Torah. We all have areas of our life where we are not a servant of God. There are very few people who are described as an Eved Hashem, a servant of Hashem, a servant of God. Abraham, Moshe is called that, Caleb is called that. It's a very rare honorific. We all have all these other things, this this whole other agenda, my agenda. I'm an independent person. I have all things that I want. My will seems to float to the surface and have all my impulses and desires and cravings and interests. Oh, this is my weakness. These are all examples of our agenda, not the Almighty's agenda. And in those areas where I have my own agenda, I am not a servant of Hashem. And therefore those areas we have to know in any area, in any capacity, that you are not a servant of God. You are not a candidate to receive, to accept. Torah. And that's a terrifying notion. In that area, you're, you're kind of like the Ishmaelites. We're kind of like, I'm like the Ishmaelites and the nation of Asaf and Amon and Moab and all the other nations. I say, well, it's not for me. It's not for me because well, I have me. I, me exists. This independent thing called me exists. In any area that we're not a servant of Hashem, The angels are right. We're not a candidate to accept Torah. And this is our mission now. Everyone, I'm encouraging everyone to find something on their level, find some little corner of your life where you can forfeit some small element of your own agenda. And in that tiny area, what you want doesn't matter. In this little corner of my life, I'm going to forfeit what I want. And I'll say, I'll follow the example of Ruth. I'll become a servant of Hashem. I'll become an angel. What does he want? What I want, it's not relevant. It's hard to become like Ruth, to give up everything, to become a full convert. But we should find, I'm encouraging everyone, to find one tiny, microscopic area of life where we can self-abnegate. And in that area, we can be sure that we are accepting Torah. In that area, we become a servant of Hashem, not of the foreign god, not of the Yitzhara. And if it's something which is easy for us, it's like kindness and hospitality for Ishmael, or honoring parents for Asaf, that's not where it is. That's not where we demonstrate that we're like an angel, we're like a servant. Find something small, but something where there is resistance. Asav and Ishmael will be glad to forward something that they already were doing. It was within their existing identity. But what are we willing to give up for Hashem? Where can I submit my will to His will? In that area, that is where our acceptance of Torah lies. May we all be so fortunate to have a productive and uplifting and meaningful Shavuos. May we experience some of the power of the Sinai revelation that's going to be revisited on the festival. And may we be worthy of bearing the Torah within us. I appreciate your time and attention. I'm speaking to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. My name is Yakov Wolby. You could send me an email with a question or a comment or any sort of feedback. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. And of course, you could support the great work of Torch. Our website is torchweb.org. Have a fantastic and uplifting Shavuos.